You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Good to see you guys. Thank you for being at church today. Um, It is a joy to be with you. I appreciate your faithfulness. I am glad to be back in the pulpit after... Uh, several weeks off, and um, I, I told the first service I was blaming uh, Brian O'Dell. Um, the day before I went into the hospital, he was talking about how much he loved how the the church of New Heights operates and how we have a plurality of pastors. And if he said, "Man, if you die, like the church just goes on. Like we got so many good pastors." and and I told him, I think he brought that up on me. But, um, but thankfully, we, we do have a great team of pastors, and um, that was not a worry at all. But um, if you don't know, I, yeah, I was in the hospital for a little while and had my gallbladder removed and um, feeling so much better and uh, really thankful for your prayers, your care for me. Um, I have learned that uh, I, I just have a conversion to share. Um, I've become a croc wearer. Um, I swore I would never do it. Uh, I've made fun of Pastor Patrick for years for it. Uh, I'm still not going to preach in them, Patrick, but, um, but you know, I, I'm wearing them now. And, and my son, like everything comes full circle, right? Like socks with sandals was not cool back in my day. And now I'm not cool because I wear sandals without socks. And uh, the youth say that they can see my dogs is what they call it. <laughs> or the grippers or whatever, you know. And so, so anyway, everything comes full circle. But I found a commonality with my 12-year-old son in, in the croc worlds. We have the same crocs. And so when we're out rocking our crocking, and, um, you know, we say we have W-Riz going on is what we call it. And um, my wife just rolls her eyes because she hates that um, it's like father, like son, and that he acts like me. And, um, and, and that, uh, that kind of passing on of, of Riz, so to speak, and if you don't know what that is, you can look it up on TikTok, but, um, but that, that, that father-son legacy is, is what actually the theme of the sermon is that we're going to look at today. And so um, we go through books of the Bible, um, just book by book, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. It's called expository preaching, and we're spending most of this year in, um, in the book of Genesis. And so if you got a Bible, open it up or turn it on and go to Genesis uh, chapter 23. Today I'm going to cover chapters 23 and 24. And, and what's happening in this, we've broken the, the whole book into six sections of, of patriarchal figures. First we looked at Adam, then Noah, then Abraham. And now we're looking at Abraham's son, who is named Isaac. And so today we transition into uh, the fourth section of the sermon series as we begin to look at the life of Isaac. Now Abraham's still going to play a pivotal part, but the narrative kind of changes focus to focus on Isaac's story. Uh, specifically today we're going to look at how uh, Isaac meets his wife and how they come together. So we got the brewings of a love story here today. Um, In in these two chapters, I'm going to show you a funeral, a journey, and a wedding. That's kind of the three uh, uh, points of the outline that we're going to walk through today, a funeral, a journey, and a wedding. And so um, let's go ahead and jump right into the first one, which is a funeral. Now, being a pastor, unfortunately, one of the things that come with the territory is preaching a lot of funerals. Um, Some funerals I I, I preach and and meet with the family, and there's a blessed assurance of uh, an afterlife, an eternity in heaven um, through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, what we call the gospel. Um, And with those come come a celebration of life and an assurance of hope of eternal, uh, eternal life. 
Um, others, not so much. Others are, are way more um, difficult because maybe there's not that testimony and that, and that clear legacy. Um, one of the things we see at a funeral, though, is it, it turns our attention to what the deceased left behind. Um, what values or principles of life did they leave behind with the people that are, are carrying on? And it also, every time we go to a funeral, it reminds us of the brevity of life. And here in chapter 23, one of the main characters of, of Abraham's story, his wife, Sarah, passes away. And her death brings about this, this awareness to Abraham of the brevity of his own life and, and the reminder of God's covenant that it was going to be for his offspring, for his descendants. And so you're going to see a focus of Abraham to make sure that the torch is passed, so to speak, to Isaac. Let's look at chapter 23. Verse 1 tells us, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And so it gives us the details of Sarah's passing. She's an old lady. She has, she's honored the Lord with her life, and she passes away. Now, her passing brings grief um, to her husband and to her son. At this time, Isaac is 37 years old. Um, he is still single. He's a bachelor. I guarantee you Isaac was a mama's boy like I am. Uh, nothing wrong with that. But, um, but, I mean, you think about it. Sarah was barren. She was unable to have children. It was a miracle from God that she was able to conceive and have a son. She gave birth to him when she was 90 years old. And so she goes most of her life thinking, I'll never have a son, never have a daughter, never have children. And then she has a son. I guarantee you she babied that boy. She, she protected him, loved him, and, and he loved her dearly. And, and now they're grieving the loss of this matriarch. Now, Abraham, um, it's important for you to remember as we go through this, is a sojourner in the land that God had promised to him, meaning that God told Abraham, you're going to get all of this land, what we now know as Israel, it's going to be given to your descendants. But, but God makes it very clear, it's not going to be given to Abraham. He's going to be a sojourner in the land. What that basically means is he's, it's like he's staying at the KOA in Milton. Okay, he's there, he's, he's going to the Piggly Wiggly or whatever it is now, food fair, like he's in the community, but he doesn't own land. He doesn't have claim for anything. He's, he's pitched his tents there and, and he's living there, um, but all of his neighbors own the land that he lives on. And he addresses some of his Hittite neighbors um, when his wife dies and he basically says, hey, I'm staying at the KOA, I have nowhere that I can bury my wife. I don't have any right to any land anywhere. I'm far from home. Um, can I buy some land? And so so he begins to buy or ask to buy some land so that he can bury his wife. Look at the response from the Hittites that, that live in the land in verse 6. They say, hear us, my Lord, you're a prince of God among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will withhold from you his tomb to hinder you from burying your dead. Now, that sounds really nice, and it, and it was a nice gesture, uh, but, but we need to understand, I need to explain what they're doing here. They're not offering to give land to Abraham. What they're offering to Abraham is to let him borrow a tomb. Now, I know it sounds silly to borrow a grave or borrow a tomb. Jesus did it, but he rose from the dead. Um, but actually, in ancient custom, and specific, specifically in Jewish custom, it was very normative to borrow tombs. The reason was is because most of these tombs were cave, either a literal cave or something they had hewn out of rock, and they would lay the deceased body in that. They would, they would wrap it, and they would, they would anoint it and put spices and so much uh, things on it. They would leave the body there to decay in the cave, and a year to two years later, they would return, and they would gather the bones after everything else had decayed. Um, and so instead of keeping like a whole body in their home, they would let the natural processes take over. They would go back and gather 
bones, and then they would keep the bones in a box, um, and they would keep that in their home, uh, not unlike you know keeping the cremated remains of a loved one today. Um, and so in that sense, you very much could borrow a tomb because uh, you only needed it for one or two years. Now, this is what the Hittites are offering to Abraham. Okay? Now, Abraham, doesn't, he's, not, he's not accepting that. He's not just going to take the, the borrowed tomb. He insists on buying the land. And what I want you to see in this is that Abraham, being the insistent guy who wants to buy the land, is actually a show of his incredible faith because he knows God has promised to give him the land that he's in. Um, you can read of the exchange, I'm not going to read it for the sake of time, with a guy named Ephron in chapter 23, verses 7 through 16. They kind of go back and forth a lot. They're being really polite. He's saying, hey, just use it for free. You don't have to pay me anything. And Abraham's saying, no, I really want to buy it. I'll give you 400 shekels of silver. And they kind of go back and forth. You, you know when you go out to lunch with someone and they say, I'll get it. I'll get lunch today. And you say, no, I'll get it. And you kind of argue over that. I've told you before, church, I'm the guy, I, I'm not rude. I'm not looking for free meals, but I will only offer to buy your lunch one time, right? If I say, let me get your lunch and you say, no, let me get it. I'm just going to be like, all right, cool. Thanks. Like you're not, don't try to play with me unless you're really serious. Okay. That's, that's how I'm going to, but Abraham, he's the insistent guy. He's the guy that won't take no for an answer. And so he ends up buying the land, even though Ephron doesn't even really want to sell it to him. And so he insists he buys it, and in verse 19, it says, After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as property for burying place by the Hittites. Now, Abraham buys this land. He buries his wife in it. Um, just to kind of fast forward and show you what eventually happens, he's buried there. His sons are buried there and their families. His grandchildren are buried there and their families. Um, this becomes a legacy type piece of property. And what's significant about it is now Abraham legitimately and legally owns a piece of the land of the grander promised land that God had promised. You see, he buys the land, but it shows an incredible act of faith because he doesn't return home to bury his wife in the land of her parents, which would have been far easier. He doesn't accept a temporary lease of a tomb, which would have been easier. He insistently buys the land because God had promised him that it would be his descendants. It is a purchase based in faith. He's legitimately and literally putting his money where his mouth is with God's promise. And so now he owns the land, and in Sarah's death and burial, the legacy had been set that, that they were going to be a people of this land, a people of God, God's family established to bless all nations on the earth. Now, Abraham's life was far from perfect, but, but what Isaac had in his dad was an incredible example of faith. What I love about the characters of Scripture is that, is that God shows us very clearly all their villainous, evil, and sinful ways. And without exception, every human being in the Bible is wretched and depraved. Abraham doesn't get it all right. Abraham screws up way more than he does righteous acts. But these little stories, the things of Abraham saying, I'm going to buy the land and I'm going to stay here because this is where God has told me to be. It doesn't show that he's holy and perfect. It shows that he has imputed righteousness because he has faith in the God who sent him there in the first place. This is how men like Abraham and Isaac can be examples to us, that, that we don't emulate everything that they've done because they're wretched, depraved people, but we can emulate their faith. We can be people of faith, that when God presents us with his promises in Scripture, we can walk in those promises and we can believe them, even when all our circumstances seem to be screaming at us that we can't. 
We can trust that God will honor what he has said he will. We can trust that God has forgiven us of our sin. We don't have to live in the shame of, of, of the acts that we've committed anymore because Jesus has paid for it on the cross. And so I, I want to ask you this morning, you may have faith to believe that Jesus has forgiven you, but have you lived your life in such a way like you've been forgiven? Have you put your money where your mouth is, so to speak? Have you, have you very literally, in the, in the way that you live your life, lived out your faith? Or is it just something of an idea for you? Because the Bible's version of faith calls us to action, not just belief. That real belief always leads to real action, 100% of the time. And so we see Abraham acting in a way that's in accordance with his belief. Now, this whole story of Sarah's death and her funeral sets up what happens in chapter 24. Verse 1, um, after this funeral, it says, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had, put, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Now at this time, Abraham is around 140 years old, and he calls for his oldest servant um, of, his, of his estate, his most trusted servant. And he asks him to swear an oath promising that he will find a wife for his son Isaac. The reason for this is because Abraham had just seen the brevity of Sarah's life. He knows the brevity of his own life. And he needs to make sure that Isaac's got to find a wife for the family to continue, right? So he needs to find a wife, and he wants the wife to come from his family. This was to protect uh, worship, that, that they wouldn't become polytheistic. Rather, they would be monotheistic, worshiping the one true God. And so he, he asked his servant to swear that he would return to where his family came from, um, Ur of Chaldea, uh, which is modern-day Baghdad. Um, Abraham at this time is in modern-day, or not Iraq, um, Israel. So Israel to Iraq, can you go and find a wife for my son? Okay, and, and so maybe Sarah's death had shaken him to the point that he thought about this. Maybe he was ill at this time. I tend to think he, there was something wrong with him. Maybe he had to have his gallbladder taken out. But I, I tend to think something had happened that made him think I'm close to the end of my life. Uh, the Bible tells us he actually, after this, ends up living another 35 years. Uh, but here, he is longing for Isaac to kind of take that torch, to continue in the covenant with God. And what I love about this is Abraham doesn't call for Isaac. I need you to see this. He doesn't ask Isaac to come in and, hey, Isaac, put your hand under my thigh and swear to me that you're not going to take a wife from this land, but you'll find a righteous wife and marry her. What's beautiful about him not bringing in Isaac is it shows that Abraham had already communicated to Isaac what he needed to know. That, that it wasn't like, I'm on my deathbed and I've got a few last things that I have to get across to Isaac because I haven't told him yet. No, Isaac knew. Isaac was almost 40 years old at this point, and he had learned over the past 40 years, Abraham had taught him about the covenant that God had made. He had taught him about the promises of God. He had told him about the land and about the descendants that their family was going to have. He had shared the gospel with his son. You see, disciples aren't made from last words. They're formed over lifetimes. And, and, and the, the mission that we've been called to is to make disciples of all nations. And if you're a parent, that begins in your home. And, and I love that Abraham very clearly did this with Isaac. 
It's like in The Lion King when Mufasa and Simba go up on that rock together. I don't know if it's Pride Rock. It might be a different named rock. But they go up and he says, Simba, see everything the light touches is our kingdom. You remember that? And that dark shadowy place, that's Wayne County. We don't go there. We don't talk about that place. But, but he says, everything the light touches, that's, that's our kingdom. Um, I, I just imagine Abraham had had so many Mufasa moments with Isaac. God told me we're going to have this land. God told me our descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky and the sands on the shore. God told me that, that, that our family is going to be the means of salvation for every nation on earth. You see, Isaac had, had learned this from his dad, and he didn't need a desperate uh, deathbed-type instruction. So Abraham, instead of calling Isaac, calls the servant. And he says, go find a wife for my son. Verse 7, it says, The Lord God of heaven, uh, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, this is Abraham speaking, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife from my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. Now, I love there's uncertainty in Abraham's voice here. He, he, he's fairly confident that God's going to find a woman for his son. But he says, if, if she's not willing to come back, then you're free from this oath. But look at that last phrase. He says, only you must not take my son back there. My, my grandfather on my mom's side, my mom's dad, um, I called him Didad. And Didad grew up, uh, he was born in the, great, in the Great Depression and in that era. And he grew up as a preacher's kid. He's incredibly poor and and I, I remember hearing about his upbringing from him and from my mom and also seeing how he lived. And, and what I loved about Didad, partly because I was just a kid that benefited from it, is he always wanted to bless kids and do things for kids. And so, like, you could ask for ice cream even if you hadn't ate your dinner, and he, you can have ice cream. Because he grew up where you never got things like that. And he, didn't, he wasn't privileged with things like that. And, and my mom would tell me that, that, that even though they didn't have very much, that he would always make sure that they had toys and candy and ice cream and things like that. Because, and he would say, because he wanted better for his kids than what he had. Now, spiritually speaking, I think this is a principle that all Christians should hold to. Especially Christians who are parents. But even if you're not a parent... Um, as a Christian who is called to make disciples of all people, you should want better for the people that you disciple or your children than the sin that you came up through. I mean, look at your own testimony, right? You can see either the, the wrong that you had done that got you in so many messes that God saved you out of, or unfair and unjust circumstances that happened upon you, that came upon you. That, that with each generation, may we pray, Lord, do not let our children see the sin that we saw or commit the sin that we committed. May our discipleship lead them into a place where they honor the covenant in a greater way than the generation before them did. That's what my prayer is. And, 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 and may we, at the end of our lives, die righteously, leaving a gospel legacy for our children to continue to walk in that covenant. And may they stand at our funerals by God's grace, maybe 60 or 70 years old, maybe not soon, but later. But may they stand at our funerals and know dad and mom loved Jesus deeply and they taught me too as well. This is what the funeral brings to Abraham. And so he emphasizes this. And his servant takes off. Point two is a journey. So a servant has to travel from, like I said, from Israel to Iraq. Um, and so he's going back to Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, or Mesopotamia. And as he travels, he, it's a long journey. 
Um, it's a difficult journey, and he's going to find someone, and it's a difficult ask to ask someone to just like up and leave and go far away. And so verse 10 tells us, then the servant took 10 of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. Now the servant sets off on his journey with 10 camels and a whole lot of bling, uh, basically. And, and I need to explain why, why he does that, right? Um, if, if you've ever gotten an email, like if you have an AOL account, I promise you you've gotten this email. Um, if, it's time to upgrade from AOL, by the way. But if you do, you've probably gotten emails about like these random princes in Africa, and they need to like save the world, and, and they need your help. They, they came to America Online to find you, to help them, and, and so they just need you to send like 10 $25 prepaid Visa gift cards to help this African prince, right? And Jeremy's fallen for that multiple times. Um, he just sends the money, no questions asked. But most of us look at that, and we're like, yeah, that's a scam, right? And so the servant here, he's going to err, and, and he, he needs to roll in with some credibility, right? So camels were like Escalades back in the day. So he's like, I'm going to get 10 camels and I, he's got bracelets and nose rings and all these things. You can read about what he gives to uh, Rebecca and her family, but he's got to validate that when he says, I've got a rich master back home who's looking for a wife for his son, he's got to validate that he actually does have a rich master. So he doesn't look like the, you know, African visa gift card guy. Okay. And so, so he comes knowing that he's got to validate the claim. And then we see what happens when he gets there in verse 11. Okay. In verse 11, uh, he gets to the city of Nahor um, in Mesopotamia, and it says, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master, Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master, Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water. So he's praying to God. By the way, I love that he tells God where he is. It's like, <laughs> like God doesn't know. He's like, I'm, I'm by the spring of water. He says, behold, I'm standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman uh, to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And quickly she let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. Now, this scene, I visualize everything I read in the Bible. This scene reminds me of Beauty and the Beast when Belle's like walking through and she goes, there goes the baker with his tray like always. And it, it's, a, it's like all the commotion of the city and people are busy and running around. And, and Belle is beautiful, right? But, but her beauty is not just what's striking and attractive to, to the, the audience as that we're watching. Um, what's striking about her is actually her intelligence. She's reading books and everyone makes fun of her for it. Her kindness, her humility, all those things come shining through. And I love it because it reminds me of Rebecca. The 
that Rebecca coming to, with all these other women, to the spring, to the well, to draw water. And, and notice what the servant prays for. He prays for righteous character. He doesn't pray, Lord, help me find the prettiest woman in the city. He doesn't pray, help me find the woman with the richest family so she can be a sugar mama to Isaac. What he prays is, is let the woman give me a drink, number one, kindness, and let the woman also water all my livestock, which, going the extra mile. Humility, not thinking of herself. And so the one who will be quick to help, a humble servant, a nurturing and caring spirit, that is the woman that's chosen for God's family. And it's beautiful that she models this so perfectly. And she even extends her care and hospitality to giving this man a place to stay. In verse 25, she added, we have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. She said, bring all your camels and come over to our house. You can, while you're in town, you can stay with us. What we can learn from this, and you need to apply this to your life, and you need to see that God's servants are most often not the ones that draw big crowds with the big flashiness. They're the ones who serve others quietly and humbly. They're not the ones with the most pomp and fanfare, but they're the ones who put everyone before themselves. This is the princess of God. This is whom God had chosen to be the matriarch of his family. Verse 26 says, the man bowed his head and worshiped the Lord. See, he recognized this is the character of the woman that God had sent and said, blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way of the house of my master's kinsman. So what's important here is that miraculously and expediently and quickly that, that he had found um, Abraham's great niece, which would make Rebecca Isaac's first cousin once removed, right? And I know that sounds like Alabama marriage or maybe Lincoln County, but, um, but it, was, it, was what, it was what was in God's plan, and more importantly, it was what Abraham and Isaac both wanted. Um, and so this fits perfectly into what, uh, what God had planned. And so the long journey to find her culminates at her family's home. We see in verse 29, um, fast forward, they go to Rebecca's home. Uh, it says, Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring, the bracelets um, on his sister's arms and, and heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man. And behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I've prepared the house and a place for the camels. The man came to the house, unharnessed the camels, gave straw and fodder to the camels, and there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat, but he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. And he said, speak on. Now what he does here is he begins to retell the entire narrative. And if you would continue reading, again, I'm not going to read it all for the sake of time, but if you would continue reading after verse 33, he, he retells everything that happened at the well. And how he knows that Rebecca is the one and how God had led him to Rebecca. And so point three of today's sermon is the wedding. Now we get to the good part. We've seen the funeral, the death of Sarah, the need of God's family that leads to the journey of the servant to go to a faraway land. And now we're going to get to the proposal, which isn't going to come from Isaac. It's going to come from Abraham's servant to return to the promised land to then have a wedding. Verse 49 says, now then, if you're going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me. And if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. So he kind of lays out the case. Here's what happened. Here's how I know that your daughter, Rebecca, is the one that God has chosen to be in this uh, heavenly family. 
Verse 50 says, Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. Now, arranged marriages were quite normal at the time, but still I look at this and I'm like, that's it? That's all it took? That, like some, some jewelry and a, and, a, and a cool story about how you found the right person at the well? Um, I got my wife by an arranged marriage, thankfully, because, uh, because when she was 16 and decided she wanted to date, her parents only trusted two families, and she said, you can, or they said, you can date one of these two boys. You know that old adage, if, if you want to escape a bear in the woods, you don't have to run faster than the bear, you just have to be faster than your buddy. So I didn't have to be a 10, I just had to be better than the other option, right? So, so, so it worked out for me, thankfully. Um, and... And I benefited from that, but, but even on our wedding day, right, it was still a little shaky. She didn't have cold feet, but her dad did, and like he was offering to buy her a brand new car if she just wouldn't marry me, right? So it's still a little bit shaky, and so like that's a father's heart, right? I want to keep my baby girl, and here you have Bethuel, Rebecca's dad, and he's just like, okay, cool story. Uh, pack everything up. She can leave tomorrow. I mean, it's just, it just seems way too easy. It, it doesn't make logical sense to me. Um, but, but what they're saying is when they say we cannot speak bad or good, it, it's a phrase that basically means the decision has already been made. And so what Bethuel is pointing out is that God had already made the decision. And so it really didn't matter if he liked it or not. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road for most of us. Because we know God's promises. We know God's plan. Sometimes it's uncertain. Sometimes it's hard for us to see 10 steps down the road. Maybe we can only see the next step of faith, and we want to evaluate should we be obedient based on whether we like it or not. When in reality, we should have the faith of a guy like Bethuel to say, I can't speak bad or good about what's coming next. All I can do is trust God and walk where he wants me to walk, to live in the way that he wants me to live. Because the decision has been made by someone who is far better at decision-making than you. God's plan is what's best for your life. And so perhaps Bethuel is looking at this. Maybe they had been praying for a husband for Rebecca. Maybe they had received some kind of confirmation through circumstances that Moses doesn't record. I don't know. But what is clear is that they believed that it was the Lord's plan. And it didn't matter if it felt comfortable to them or not. Now, thankfully, they don't force Rebecca to go. They get her consent. They ask her. Verse 57 says, let us call the young woman and ask her. Now, Rebecca herself is faced with a decision. Her parents are okay with it. Her brother's okay with it. They, they believe it's the plan of God, but now she's faced with this decision. Will she follow God's plan? And, and so many times we end up at these kind of crossroad moments in our lives that, that many times come upon us that we, I mean, she began the day by going to draw water for the day. She had no idea that her, the trajectory of her life was going to be completely altered by a decision that was made that evening. And how many times do we just unknowingly go into the day having no idea what awaits us, having no idea what's going to happen next, and, and then how we respond in moments of circumstances that are crossroads of if we honor the Lord or not has everything to do with faith. May we be people of faith. Like Rebecca. In verse 58, they call Rebecca and they say to her, Will you go with this man? Now, it's not recorded. It doesn't say this, but I guarantee you she was nervous. She was afraid. 
I know she had the nose rings and the bracelets and all that, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like this glamorous thing. She was stepping into what was completely unknown and uncertain for her. And in verse 58, she says, I will go. God's plan looms ahead of you with uncertainty. And you don't have to like that, okay? You can, you can not like the fact that God doesn't tell you everything. But as a faithful Christian, what God asks of us is to walk in his ways and trust him. And I promise you, if you don't like it now, you will like it eventually because he is sovereign and good. I remember when, when I quit a really good job working for you, Dad, to, to plant a church. It was terrifying. I mean, in many ways, it's still terrifying. i got to put up with all y'all. and It's scary. But the, faced with those crossroad-type decisions, am I going to do what I, what I just really can clearly see the Lord has laid out and called me to do, or am I going to do what's easiest and most comfortable? Pastor James a couple weeks ago preached about um, being at a conference and David Platt preaching at that conference to us. We were all there. Pastors were there. and he, David Platt challenged us to, to pray a prayer that was like writing a blank check to God. Basically, in essence, praying to God and say, we are signing our name without knowing what you want us to do. You tell us what you want us to do, and we'll do it. And then, and then we all end up in ministry, right? And, and I want to ask you today, is your faith strong enough to write a blank check to God? That you would sign your name, and you would truthfully tell God, I will do anything, whatever it costs, to follow in your plan. Rebecca gives us a beautiful example of doing that. Verse 59 says, They sent away Rebecca, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. By the way, they end up, um, they end up kind of going back and forth a little bit more. I'm skipping some of the narrative, but, um, but great faith is shown. Verse 60 tells us, They blessed Rebecca and said to her, Our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. And so some of the things that transpire is they say, well, she can go, but don't, don't go so soon. Don't, don't hastily go into this. Wait a little bit longer. And, and what ends up happening is the great faith of Rebecca is she says, I will go. And, and so they come around her and they, and they bless her, which was very normative to do. And they bless her by saying, may you become thousands of ten thousands, which again was very normative to do that a woman would go and get married and have children who would have children who would have children, that they would be a large family that would, that would show the blessing of God. But then they say this thing that's a little bit unusual. They say, may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him, which is like a really like military-type blessing. I mean, it's just kind of, you ever like have somebody pray for you and you got your eyes closed, you're kind of in like a holy moment and they say something weird and you just kind of like open your eye a little bit. You ever do that? Maybe I'm the only one. I don't know. But I just imagine like as they're pronouncing this blessing upon Rebecca, she's like receiving it and she's like, what was that military promise about? And, and what's interesting about this is as they pronounce this blessing over Rebecca, they prophetically utter the exact words of God from chapter 22. Without realizing they're quoting the Lord Almighty, they quote him and, 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 and really bring about a messianic prophecy. In verse, verse 17 18 of chapter 22, Pastor Jeremy preached it last week. God says, I will surely bless you, Abraham, and will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sands on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. 
That means your offspring is going to be the king of the world, going to rule everyone. The king of all kings is going to be your offspring is basically what that prophetic blessing means. And he says, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. This isn't merely pointing to Isaac or Jacob or Joseph or any one of the families that we're going to see in Genesis. It's pointing to Jesus. The New Testament tells us that and makes it clear. The best commentator and explainer of the Old Testament is the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. And Galatians chapter 3, verse 16 says, The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of Genesis. All of the promises of Genesis find their completion in Jesus Christ. The crux of all history is he dies for our sins and raises from the dead to bring us into this family eternally. And by Rebecca's humble submission and her, her family's ignorant blessing that they have no idea what they're saying, they're saying, Rebecca, we are praying that you step into a story that only God can write that will lead to the salvation of people from every nation on the earth. The wedding and the marriage to Isaac would position her to replace Sarah as the matriarch in the line toward the Messiah. Her faithfulness would bring about salvation to many, and she arrives back in the promised land in verse 63 to the end of the chapter. Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. He lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. He'd been waiting for this. Could you imagine him? It was like, I know you're bringing me back a wife, and like just the excitement, you know? And, and Rebecca lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. This is cinematic right here. She said to the servant, who is this man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, it's my master. So she took her veil and she covered herself. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. You see, this arranged marriage culminates in a happily ever after type scene here with Isaac and Rebekah. Rebecca comes and, and brings the comfort that Isaac was lacking in his life. Isaac loves Rebecca. She's the object of his affection. In the coming weeks, we're going to learn more about Isaac and Rebecca and their lives together and their children. But for now, I want you to learn a, a little bit from this story and how to apply it to your story. Because a funeral, a journey, and a wedding is really the outline of the Christian's life. Every Christian testimony follows the same pattern, a funeral, a journey, and a wedding. You see, every Christian testimony begins with a funeral. And the reason is, is because you cannot come to God's family unless you die to yourself. That's just how the gospel works. You cannot be saved by yourself. You can't be saved by your own works. You can't be saved by being good enough because you can't be good enough. You are sinful and depraved, then if you don't believe me, just do a quick survey of the past week of your life, and you will see that you're not perfect. And God's standard is perfection. He will not be in the presence of sin. And so the only way that you can be saved is to die. Spiritually die to yourself. And, and in the story of Genesis, it is not mere coincidental irony that the first land Abraham would rightfully own was a cemetery. It's the message of death. The call to come to God is a call to die to yourself. 
Jesus himself said this in Matthew 16. Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You want to bring glory to God, you have to stop bringing glory to yourself. They will not coexist. They will not share the stage. You have to die to yourself. So every Christian testimony begins with a funeral, and every Christian life is a journey. Abraham's servant went on a long journey to find a bride for his master, and our Christian lives are like long journeys filled with joy, sorrow, ups, downs, lots of exhaustion. And you remember how easily Bethuel released his daughter? You remember that? just made no sense. It's because it's not logical. When we read that and think, man, he just let his daughter up and leave, it's not logical. It's an act of faith, not of evidence. And as we journey, as we live as Christians, the mission we've been given is to bring other people along into the family of God with us. So those of you that maybe have been coming to church for a little while, or someone invited you, like they're living in this journey. They're bringing you into the family of God. And, and, and if you will come along into the family of God, you must come by faith, not by evidential conviction. We can't convince you of this. You, it, it's, it feels illogical at times. But you believe that Jesus died to pay for your sins and rose from the dead, and you come into the family of God by faith in that. And by faith, when you do that, you become the church, which is called a bride to a good bridegroom called Jesus Christ. And so the culmination of our journey is a wedding. Rebecca went on a long journey to get to the master's wedding. And our story of walking with Jesus for a lifetime in the Bible is symbolized at the end of the book with a wedding, a marriage celebration. We started in Genesis, the first book of the Bible. We'll end the sermon today in Revelation, the last book of the Bible. At the end of the journey is a wedding. Revelation 19 says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The image that God has chosen to use to explain what happens at the end of our Christian journey, our lives, is that we're married to Jesus, to live with him forever, to be united with him forever, to be in his presence forever. And that is only possible through the work of Jesus. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.